Hi, I'm Tommy Henry, and welcome to this episode of the Chicago History Podcast. Quiz time, which of the following of this list is not part of today's story? A castle, extortion, Dolly Parton, bombings, the punk band The Sex Pistols, an abduction, playwright Tennessee Williams, catacombs, a mysterious fire, or JFK's sister-in-law? Well, it's a trick question. All of these things play a part in today's story about the Ivanhoe, a 1920s speakeasy turned restaurant turned theater in Chicago and its nearly 80-year run of ups and downs. Note this episode includes research assistance from Elizabeth McKinley, a technical services librarian at the Chicago History Museum. If you aren't a member, consider becoming one. If you can't become a member right now, please consider donating a few bucks their way. Info on how to do so is in the show's notes. If you're driving down Clark Street about a half mile south of Wrigley Field, you'll see a building on the northwest corner at 3000 North Clark at Wellington that looks like a castle. That castle-like building was opened in the 1920s as the Ivanhoe, named after Sir Walter Scott's novel about medieval England, by brothers Harold and Ralph Jensen as a restaurant, restaurant, by the way, is in air quotes, uh, that also had a reputation during Prohibition as a speakeasy, utilizing the catacombs under the building to stay under the radar. Between the opening and the late 60s, the Ivanhoe was the upscale place to be on the north side, Ladies' luncheons, school trips, convention attendees, business meetings, and more all occurred at the Ivanhoe. The catacombs used during the speakeasy days were converted after Prohibition ended into a second bar area separate from the restaurant. Sure, there were a few problems along the way. In 1939, a porter was robbed by two gunmen in front of the restaurant. And in 1949, thieves climbed over a 14-foot wall on the Wellington side, tying up the night watchman and two dishwashers, making off with a half-ton safe and a second smaller safe containing $14,000 total. That's more than $150,000 in today's money. For the most part, business was good, more with conventioneers than locals, but overall good. Toward the end of the 50s, though, things began to change for the Ivanhoe. In late May 1958, Ivanhoe owner Harold Jensen, then 53, was beaten in front of his home a few blocks from the restaurant in an extortion attempt. The Times newspaper out of Streeter, Illinois, quoted Chicago detective John Narrator claiming Harold Jensen told him he received an anonymous call on May 24th threatening to harm one of his children unless he turned over $2,000, almost $18,000 in today's money. He retrieved the money from his restaurant and was attacked at about 2 a.m. that night by four men who held him prisoner while they drove around and counted the money. Jansen was then dumped from the still-moving car. Jansen did not report the crime to police and spent a week in the hospital recovering, then left for a hastily scheduled trip to Arizona with his wife. Police were eventually made aware of this all through a family friend. Investigators at the time felt the whole incident may have been a warning to the Chicago restaurant industry not to cooperate with the upcoming Senate Rackets Committee investigation of Chicago labor issues headed by Robert F. Kennedy. A 24-hour police protection detail was later provided to the Jansen family. 
Two months later, in July of that year, a group of local restaurant owners, including Harold Jansen's son Richard Jansen and Gustav Allgauer, whose fireside restaurant in Lincolnwood had been burned down by arsonists on May 13th of that year, were called to testify against John and Danny Lardino, both who held positions with the 10,000-member local 593 of the Chicago Hotel and Restaurant Employees and Bartenders Union. The Lardinos were linked to, insert gasp here, organized crime accused of shaking down restaurants by forcing those restaurants to put some of their employees in the union, collecting union dues for those employees, then pocketing those dues. Both of the Lardinos invoked the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination. Both also refused to even answer whether they were American citizens. The fireside restaurant arson, by the way, was not a mysterious fire in the middle of the night arson. Three armed and masked intruders entered the restaurant and held seven employees captive while splashing a flammable liquid all over the interior and lighting it. Fortunately, all employees escaped relatively unharmed. In the summer of 1964, a wave of bombings in Chicago-area restaurants, nightclubs, and taverns was reported. The August 12, 1964 Streeter, Illinois newspaper The Times reported the latest incident, there had been close to 50 by then, was that a, quote, dynamite bomb exploded in the vestibule of the ornate Ivanhoe restaurant on the north side, end quote. Police said the blast caused an estimated $2,000 damage, about $16,500 in today's money, but no one was injured as the Ivanhoe was closed for the night and the five employees on hand were in the kitchen. James McMahon, assistant director for the Illinois Department of Public Safety, surmised a crime syndicate may have been trying to muscle in on the owners for a cut of the profits or to force the establishments to buy commodities from the syndicate. In what was either a publicity grab or I don't know what, the very next day on August 13th, 1964, the Tribune carried an ad that read, Memo to the Bomber. Look, Mac, if you want to use the bathroom at 4 a.m., just knock. Followed by the address, the Ivanhoe Restaurant, 3000 North Clark Street. In 1966, with Ivanhoe's conventioneer clientele falling off, owner Richard Jansen formed the Ivanhoe Theater Company, building an area theater adjacent to the restaurant on a lot where a circus used to board their elephants. This theater in the round had a stage set in the center with seating on all sides. For reference, Chicago's main commercial theater district has almost always been mainly downtown in the Loop. The Ivanhoe was about five miles north of that area. At this time around the city, there were more and more theaters popping up in areas Chicago's wouldn't expect theater, and this was one. During the first two years, according to Richard Christensen's 2004 book, A Theater of Our Own, A History and a Memoir of a Thousand and One Nights in Chicago, the Ivanhoe presented guest stars in tried-and-true lightweight fare. The theater had a few successes and hit newspapers around the country with the 1967 revival of Philip Berry's 1939 society comedy The Philadelphia Story, starring Lee Bouvier Radziwell, Jacqueline Kennedy's younger sister, 
which was widely panned. There was also a fairly well-received staging of Tennessee Williams' The Glass Menagerie with Mercedes McCambridge. Without gaining any traction in theater circles, Jansen hired George Keithley, upon the suggestion of actress Celeste Holm, as artistic overseer and resident director. Keithley, who had directed an early version of Tennessee Williams' Sweet Bird of Youth in Miami in the 50s, which got him some recognition, moved to New York before landing his first job in Chicago, staging Arthur Miller's A View from the Bridge for the Studebaker Theater Company. Jansen, however, retained the title of producer, which gave him control of money coming in and going out. More on that in a bit. Within months, Keithley turned the Ivanhoe Theater from a second-rate operation, presenting lackluster comedies with second-rate actors, into a powerhouse commercial operation, offering significant American dramas for an off-loop audience hungry for them. The first Joseph Jefferson Awards, Chicago's version of the Tony Award, ever presented were in 1969, and of the six awards presented that year, the Ivanhoe's staging of the Rose Tattoo took three of them, Best Production, Keithley for Best Direction, and Rita Moreno received the Guest Artist Award. In an article in the February 8, 1970 Tribune, Moreno was quoted, Doing the Rose Tattoo was a fantastic experience. It changed my whole life. I found out I can be very strong on stage. I didn't know that until then. I can actually make people keep quiet. Right after, I auditioned for three things and was offered all three, all because I had such self-confidence, end quote. Moreno also appeared in The Miracle Worker at the Ivanhoe in the fall of 1969 under Keithley's direction. In 1971, George Keithley brought the down-and-out Tennessee Williams to Chicago to stage the playwright's two-character drama Outcry at the Ivanhoe, premiering July 8th of that year. Although the newspapers of the day portrayed Williams as never looking better and quoted him as saying he was eager to get back on track, behind the scenes he was suffering from depression and drug and alcohol addiction, which made the temperamental Williams residency at the Ivanhoe difficult for the cast and crew, even lashing out at Keithley, who had been a strong supporter of Williams. In Richard Christensen's book, A Theater of Our Own, Christensen writes about Outcry, Two years later, when, in a new production with a different director, the play flopped on Broadway, Williams said rightly, quote, it was better in Chicago, end quote. On August 26, 1971, Status Quo Vadis, written and directed by Broadway professional Donald Driver, opens. This social satire comedy ran a total of 58 weeks, becoming the theater's most commercially successful production. Although injecting the theater with some much-needed funds, it threw off the subscription schedule. The play was later brought to Broadway in 1973 and was a one-performance flop. In April of 1973, Ivanhoe restaurant owner Richard Jansen admitted to buying liquor from other retail licensees in violation of state law as he was delinquent in payments to his liquor distributors. Jansen said he was unaware of the violations as his liquor buyer had not kept him informed. In the March 9th, 1975 Chicago Tribune article, At Ivanhoe, High Hopes in Hard Times, writer Linda Weiner examined the state of the Ivanhoe as it prepared to launch its latest production, The Last Straw, a title that turned out to be highly prophetic, from Donald Driver, who years earlier 
was the driving force behind bringing Quo Vadis to the stage at Ivanhoe. In the article, there is an acknowledgement that profits from the theater's productions were being used to prop up the failing restaurant. George Keithley is quoted in the article, quote, The restaurant built the theater, now the theater is paying it back, end quote. On Monday, April 7th, 1975, Tribune readers were greeted with writer Aaron Gold's column, Tower Ticker, which reported that over the weekend, after 54 years of attracting tourists, conventioneers, prom kids, movie stars, and visiting dignitaries, the Ivanhoe restaurant had closed. Bad business and a mountain of unpaid bills resulted in this painful end. There were reports that owners of three highly successful restaurants, R.J. Grunt's, Fritz, That's It, The Great Gritsby's, and a fourth yet-to-open, Jonathan Livingston's Seafood, would take over the restaurant and let someone run the theater for them. On May 27, 1975, the Ivanhoe was sold to Philip Stover at auction for $1.725 million, about $49 million in today's money. Sources close to the transaction at the time said Stover bought it as an investment and planned to lease it to someone who would reopen it as a dinner theater. A little more than two weeks later, the American National Bank and Trust filed suit against Stover, contending he defaulted on a commitment to deposit $100,000 earnest money by May 30th. That's three days after the auction took place. According to Richard Detmer's column titled The Goodman, The Ivanhoe, The Confusion in the September 21st, 1975 Tribune, George Keithley was at the Goodman Theater reading an October 9th production of Our Town. Back at the Ivanhoe, even though the restaurant remained shuttered, the theater was leased to a Dallas-based producer who brought his rock musical version of A Midsummer Night's Dream to the Ivanhoe. It appears most of Chicago had heard about the Ivanhoe's demise, may have thought the building was bulldozed, and certainly few knew that someone had leased the theater. Barry Hope had trouble getting a telephone set up at the Ivanhoe to take reservations, as so much money was still owed to Illinois Bell. When Hope finally got his own number there, Illinois Bell wouldn't give the new number out to those who called the old one. The city also refused to give anyone operating at the Ivanhoe a liquor license, as so much was still owed in unpaid liquor taxes. In September of 1976, the Ivanhoe Theater reopened under the guidance of Bob Briggs, who had success with a restaurant nightclub on Lincoln Avenue called Ratzos. His efforts to build the Ivanhoe into an elegant pop music cabaret did not get off to a good start when on opening night, September 8, 1976, the ushers had no seating charts, food service was erratic, and an entire aisle of seats collapsed. Making things worse, the headliner, comedian David Steinberg, went on 50 minutes late. Although Briggs had a few successful nights, by December of that year, he was placed on the Illinois Liquor Control Commission's list of delinquent retailers, owing $16,000 to liquor wholesalers, which kept him from being able to purchase liquor for the Ivanhoe until his debts were paid. On Tuesday, February 1st, 1977, a mysterious blaze tore through the restaurant section of the Ivanhoe. That fire apparently started in an area undergoing renovation, resulting in $100,000 in damage, about $423,000 in today's money. Damage was mainly limited to the restaurant side. Three days later, on February 4th, 1977, the Chicago Tribune ran an article with the headline, 
arson ruled out at Ivanhoe. The article stated that Sergeant Harold Ziegler of the Chicago Police Department's Bomb and Arson Unit said investigators inspected the debris in the basement area where the fire apparently started Tuesday morning, but could find nothing suspicious. Ziegler went on to say that the basement had been damaged by the flames and also flooded by the water used to battle the three-alarm blaze, which made the search for arson evidence difficult. Bob Briggs, the operator of the Ivanhoe Theater, announced the theater would reopen Monday if city inspectors approved. By March, the Landlords, an investment group calling itself the Clark Street Associates, foreclosed for non-payment of rent, and Briggs was out. Enter a new firm called Gumdrops. Gumdrops Partners went about cleaning up the theater, improving the sound system, and grudgingly working with concert promoter Jam to get quality acts to the new Ivanhoe. They stressed the word new. The first six months went well with acts such as Minnie Ripperton, Dolly Parton, Tom T. Hall, Doug Kershaw, Kiki D., Jerry Jeff Walker, the Ramones, and Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes performing. The only setback was when Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons were billed, and Valley only performed two numbers. New Year's Eve 1977 would have been a memorable night at the Ivanhoe as the Sex Pistols, England's notorious punk band, was scheduled to play. Tickets were printed, $4 general admission, but a snag regarding getting the band visas to come to the States meant the show had to be postponed. The band finally did make it to America, but imploded not long after, described in wonderful detail in Mick O'Shea's 2018 book, The Sex Pistols Invade America, The Faithful U.S. Tour, January 1978, Never to Play Chicago. From 1978 to 1982, the theater space would go unused. As for the restaurant side, in an article in the marketing media section of the Chicago Tribune on March 28, 1979, with the headline, High Value Liquor Stores Becoming Common, Harold Binstein, who heads up the gold standard liquor chain, anticipates top volume from his new location opening in the old Ivanhoe restaurant in May or June. In the September 5th, 1982 Chicago Tribune article titled All Eyes Are on the Big One, Funeral, Reopening Ivanhoe, theater critic Richard Christensen wrote about the September 14th opening of Funeral March for a One-Man Band at the restored and renovated Ivanhoe Theater produced by a mid-30s commodities trader named Douglas Bragan. Bragan leased the theater with an option to buy, redesigning the theater in the round space to one where 395 guests could be arranged around three-fourths of a flexible, shallow thrust stage. He also created three smaller spaces that could be used concurrently for other productions. Through the rest of the 80s, the theater was used as a rental house, providing a venue for plays such as Larry Kramer's AIDS crisis drama The Normal Heart in June of 1987. Word came in January 1990, the theater was once again being renovated with a $250,000 rehab and would get a new name, the Wellington Theater. The first production plan was the one-woman comedy Shirley Valentine, starring Ellen Burstyn, which got good reviews. In February 1991, the bittersweet comedy Prelude to a Kiss from playwright Craig Lucas was staged at the Wellington Theater. 
According to a February 20th, 1992 article in the Los Angeles Times, Prelude to a Kiss set a record at the Wellington Theater with a 49-week run and box office revenues of $2.4 million. The play, quote, was the longest-running, highest-grossing show the Wellington has ever had. And quote, according to Cheryl Lewin, the press agent for backers of the Chicago stage production. The show ran from February 14, 1991 to January 19, 1992 in the 519-seat house, although it had only been pre-sold to 3,000 subscribers. A movie based on the play was released in 1992. Parts of the film version of Prelude to a Kiss, starring Meg Ryan and Alec Baldwin, were filmed less than a mile south of the Wellington Theater in Lincoln Park. For those of you who know the area, Rita's residence was 562 West Arlington Place. In September of 1993, David Mamet's Oleana had its Chicago premiere at the Wellington Theater. In the latter part of the 90s, the Ivanhoe name came back. The famous door theater company had a long-running hit with Hell Cab before moving it to the theater building on Belmont. The later years, Ivanhoe also saw the cult hit Late Night Catechism and rented a stage to the Free Associates comedy troupe. Looking Glass Theater, founded in 1988 by a group of Northwestern University students, including David Schwimmer, housed their production of director Mary Zimmerman's Metamorphosis in 1998-1999 at the Ivanhoe. By 2000, due to parking difficulties and other issues related to running the property, owner Douglas Bregan decided it was time to sell the theater building. He had considered a sizable offer from a company interested in leveling the building and replacing it with condos, but a local neighborhood organization called Southeast Lakeview Neighbors opposed the required rezoning and the deal fell apart. Bregan ended up selling the space to Michael Binstein of the Binney's chain of adult beverage stores, which allowed Binstein to expand his existing location at Clark and Wellington. Bregan, to his credit, was quoted as saying, If I stuck with my old job as a commodities trader, I would have made 25 times more than I did at the Ivanhoe. Working in the theater was what made it worthwhile. The building is now a 50,000-square-foot adult beverage and specialty foods store. Early ads even called out the Ivanhoe Connection. The catacombs now serve as a tasting room. I will be posting pictures, ads, and other research materials from this week's episode at the Chicago History Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. Make sure you follow for more Chicago History Podcast goodness. Did you ever eat or see a show at the Ivanhoe? Do you have an old ashtray, matchbook, or swizzle stick from the restaurant? Feel free to let me know if you have any questions about anything discussed today. Also, if you have a topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast, send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I've already used one listener's suggestion and have another coming in the next few weeks. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. As always, like, subscribe, and kindly review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and tell a friend. 
It helps us get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of Chicago. Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe. Thanks for listening.